Welcome into Searching for San Antonio, part of the San Antonio Podcast Network. This series explores the Alamo City by showcasing small businesses, nonprofit organizations, and all of the wonderful people that make San Antonio what it is. Join us as we search for the true meaning of being a San Antonian. As we get started on another great episode of the podcast, I want to say thank you to all of the listeners who have been tuning in to the show week in and week out. I hope you keep enjoying the podcast. I also want to give a Texas-sized welcome to anyone checking out the show for the very first time. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so by visiting the link in bio and clicking support monthly. This week, I have a great interview lined up for you all. I'll be interviewing Elise Bernal, president and CEO of Any Baby Can San Antonio. Any Baby Can has been a safety net for families in need since 1982 and provides services regardless of income, to families who have a child with any medical diagnosis, chronic illness, disability, developmental delay, or health risk. They assist children from childbirth all the way up to age 17. Any Baby Can also has the region's only private prescription assistance program, which helps uninsured and underinsured patients of all ages get access to free or low-cost medications that they need. The services they provide include case management, community support, and family support. You're going to learn about all of these services throughout my interview with Elise. It's really an eye-opening interview and discussion about the needed services for these families. I'm really excited to get to the interview, but before I do, I do want to remind the listeners that this episode is brought to you by Live from the Southside. Live from the Southside is a Latina-owned online and print publication that helps residents and visitors find things to do on the south side of San Antonio and throughout Texas. Their goal is to improve and expand community relationships through promoting positive stories, interesting people, and businesses in the community. You can visit their website at southsidesanantonio.com, which is also where you can order the Live from the Southside magazine. You can also order your copy of the magazine on Amazon or simply subscribe to their newsletter to receive your online edition. Lastly, you can follow them at SouthsideSATX on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Huge thank you to April Monterosa and Live from the Southside for supporting the podcast. Listeners, we're going to take a quick break and I'll be right back with my interview with Elise Bernal. This is what we're made of. The businesses that line our streets and the customers that make them flourish. As a business owner, this is your community, your members, your regulars, your neighbors. Your business is unique. So are your customers. No matter who you need to reach, Spectrum Reach is here to help you connect with the right message on every screen. Visit SpectrumReach.com to connect with a local advertising expert. That's SpectrumReach.com. Welcome back into Searching for San Antonio. Like I mentioned earlier, I have Elise Bernal joining me on the episode. Elise is a graduate of the University of the Incarnate Word here in San Antonio. Beginning in 2010, she was the development director for 10 years at Susan G. Komen San Antonio and eventually became the executive director with the organization. She spent two years in that role before making the jump to Any Baby Can. Elise is a results-driven fundraising and communications leader with a history of success working in the nonprofit space. With that said... Here's my interview with Elise Bernal. So welcome into the show, Elise. I'm so happy to have you join me on this episode of Searching for San Antonio. Tell the listeners and tell me a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your career. Good question. First of all, thank you for having me. I've been working in nonprofits for about 10 years in San Antonio. I was most recently at Susan G. Komen San Antonio 
for pretty much all of those 10 years and then had this opportunity to become the CEO at Any Baby Can back in September of last year. So it's been about seven months into this new position. I bring my understanding of the community um, and understanding of the generational poverty and inequities that we have in San Antonio and how to develop responsive programming to meet those those challenges. I'm bringing that to Any Baby Can with the myriad of, of resources that we offer um, which are not available anywhere else, but but that's a little bit about how I got here. So tell the listeners a little bit more about Any Baby Can, how we got started, the purpose of it. Yeah, it it is truly a San Antonio story. So we we are going to be forty years old next year. We serve the Bear County area and the surrounding eighteen counties, but how we were started was literally out of a tremendous need in the community that was not being met. Our founder is Marion Sokol. She was working at Christus as a nurse, Christus Children's Hospital um, in the early 80s. And as all of these children and families were walking out of the hospital, being diagnosed with all kinds of medically fragile challenges and needs, they don't know where to go. They don't know where to turn. She would see them, take them aside and say, look, tell me what you need help with. Tell me, tell me what you're saying. Tell me what you're needing. And she would take them into her office, take them under her wing and get them connected to resources, get them help with their insurance, get them help with all of the things that they need that you would never think about when you have a child who's been diagnosed with a critical illness. By word of mouth, more and more people kept coming to her office, more and more of those families who were sort of walking out of the hospitals wondering, what the heck am I going to do now after I have this diagnosis? I don't know what to do. I don't even know what to ask. She got so busy that Christus had to start a, uh, had to get her a trailer outside of the hospital just to handle the demand and the families that kept coming to her. And then it just got too big. <laughs> she had to start the organization in 1982. And that's how Any Baby Came started. It was literally to help defend and to help navigate families who were being diagnosed with very medically fragile diagnoses and needed the support and the navigation to know what to do to get through that journey. Fast forward, you know, here almost 40 years later, we have four critical program areas, a case management program, which is patient navigation on steroids. We serve any child zero to 17 with any medical diagnosis. Um, We will serve not just the child, but the whole family unit and help them navigate the the medical healthcare systems to make sure you're not falling through the cracks. We've got prescription assistance program, which is available to all ages in Bear County and the surrounding 18 counties, typically um, for the uninsured, or if you don't have enough insurance, you cannot afford your prescription medications. We have advocates that can help you get it for free or low cost. We have an autism services program that has parent training component and uh, a community training component to that as well. One of our biggest advocates in in families who's an autism mom, her son, Kingston, is about 12 years old. One of the things that she's always saying and the way that she describes these services is when you're a parent, your job is to protect and to prepare your child for the world. But when you are an autism parent, you have to prepare the world for your child. And that's essentially what we're doing here with these programs. The last program that we have is is sensitive, but it's something that we definitely have to talk about because it's unfortunately the reality of of what some of our families have to face, which is a a bereavement support program called the Center for Infant and Child Loss. So families who have lost children between the ages of zero to 17, um, who are having trouble affording the funerals or um, needing help with plots, we can help provide some of um, financial support for that, for those funerals to, to give these grieving families a proper burial. 
and the dignity of the proper burial. We also um, help with grief counseling um, for families that are going through the loss of a child. So all of these programs are so unique because we do not have income requirements. So we are needs-based, we're not income-based um, and there is no charge to families. So these are ultra accessible programs the other part of this is that they're not offered anywhere else. These are non-duplicative, one-of-a-kind, unique services in this area. So um, I'm really excited to be talking with you about it today so that more folks are aware of these programs and do not have to suffer in silence if one of these programs speaks to you and could possibly be of help. Well, I think you're reading my mind because my next question was, how do you grow that awareness? How do you let these families know that these programs and your organization is out there for educational purposes, but also, like you said, you know, help with uh, prescription and families without health insurance. And maybe they can't afford final expenses if there is a, you know, an infant loss. You know, how do you grow that awareness around the community? No, it's a great question. The outreach component of this is critical because... Um, what good are any of these services or anything that's offered in the community if nobody knows how to find them or they don't know about them? We have become more aggressive about hitting the streets and getting to doors, not just expecting people to know where we are and to come find us, but to go to where families and children are so that they are aware of these services, whether that's churches, community health clinics, other nonprofits that are seeing folks who could possibly be benefiting from this. You know, meet, meeting folks where they are and where they have comfort, again, like the, like their churches, um, their neighborhoods. So we are definitely increasing our outreach efforts and having to get more creative about it because of the pandemic and without having that personal touch points and not have being able to have the events that we normally have. We, we have had to get more aggressive in how we do that. So being more strategic on social media, being more strategic in our emails and our e-blasts, also understanding that with the huge digital divide in the city, not everybody will be able to find us by doing a Google search or by being on Facebook or social media, which is why we're always working with our community partners to help us get the word out. What kind of struggles do you see whenever you're working with parents of, of children that have been diagnosed with certain disabilities and the reason I bring that up is because I know my mother used to work in special education for many years in Northside. And I know it was a struggle sometimes trying to get points across to to parents who they're struggling themselves trying to really understand their child and the needs of their child. Do you see those same struggles that some of the, the educators do? Absolutely. Um, when when families come to us, they're a little bit skeptical. They love the programs I and mean, they, they, they know that we're here and we want to help. But these families have been if we're having real talk here, they're used to being ignored. They're used to being forgotten and they're used to being told, Hey, yeah, we've got some things that may be able to help you, but then it never happens or something go, you know, falls through the cracks and you're just so busy and you're just so tired that, Oh, here's another organization promising to help me. And, and okay, what, what is this really, what's really going to come of this? So we see those struggles, especially during this last year, when you add on top of that job losses and also having to do Zoom virtual classes for your children who need specialized support that weren't available for such a long time. Um, but yeah, we definitely come to them with, we understand where you're coming from. Tell us what you need. We're not going to send you to six or seven different organizations on your own. 
Um, it's what makes it so you are programming so unique is we're going to hold your hand and we're going to walk you through it. We're not just going to expect you to do it on your own. And if you're too tired to make the phone call, we're going to make that phone call for you. So I think it's really just understanding that, you know, these, these are families and I, I you know, and, and maybe because of your mother, when you talk to disabilities advocates and you talk to these parents, they are fierce fighters. They are aggressive. They will do whatever it takes for their child or their community because they're used to, you, you got to fight for everything you can to get resources for your families. And so I definitely have seen that in this space over the last you know six or seven months or so. And it's, it's pretty special. Um, so we're trying to meet the demands of what they're, they're needing and listen. And sometimes we got to stop talking. <laughs> sometimes we have to be quiet for a little bit and just say, what do you need? What is not available? Tell us where we're missing the mark or tell us where we're getting it right. And we're just going to sit here and listen. And then we're going to adapt to what you need. So I, I think that those are some of the biggest lessons that we've learned during this really challenging year. Have you seen, and maybe not within seven months, but possibly by speaking with people that have been there longer, do you notice that there's been some innovation over time with the organization? Have there been programs that maybe are around recently that weren't around years ago? And is that continuing? Yes. um, I think this would go back to us listening and sort of seeing the way that the needs of our families are evolving. Here's a a recent example. Um, So uh, as part of our prescription assistance program to help provide medications for folks or get them access to medications who cannot afford them, We've also had to expand that program out of demand to help with medical equipment for children um, because there was a huge need, specifically cranial helmets for babies and toddlers. We were seeing a huge increase of families asking for support and financial assistance for cranial helmets for their children who were needing them. And the problem is that many insurance companies consider these cranial helmets to be cosmetic which means that a lot of these families are having to pay out of pocket upwards of $1,800 a pop for these helmets, which is extremely cost prohibitive for many of our families. So, which is why they were coming to us asking for help. This was happening so much. We started to kind of dig into this issue a little bit. We're finding out that some of our families were taking out payday loans, putting collateral on cars so that they could afford these helmets that insurance companies were not wanting to pay for. So, We took this um, issue to Representative Diego Bernal and said, look, here's a big issue that's happening in the community, frankly, becoming a little bit predatory during a desperate time in families needs, because who's not going to do those things when your child needs a helmet uh, and your doctor is saying you need this or it's going to impact their development? Um, He filed a bill, um, HB 2134, which would require um, state health regulated insurance companies and Medicaid, because not even Medicaid was covering these helmets it would require them to start covering these cranial helmets for moderate to severe cases because right now they're just not covered at all. (laughs) So this was going to be a big step. So he got this passed through all of the necessary committees. It actually passed the full house recently, right? Yes. It's got a bit of an uphill battle in the Senate right now. Um, But the fact that it's gotten this far and we're starting to hear more and more families say, Oh my gosh, we had to pay $2,000 for this. We had to pay $3,000 for this. I adopted a child and we could not, you know, we didn't realize we were going to get help with this. And so we're hearing more and more stories about this, but it's an example of how we were listening, digging into why this was coming up, but then coming up with some policy prescriptions over any baby can, can't do what we do within the four walls of this organization. We have to take it out. We've got to talk to our community leaders 
and do what we can to maximize the impact to help these families. And so that's that's one example. We'll, we'll see what happens with the bill. It's got some more work to do, but but this was certainly a huge win in terms of getting it started and getting it out there. What does the handoff look like with some of these children that, that grow up and they still have these disabilities and it gets to the point where they may have to start paying for, you know, health insurance themselves or or they may need to start looking for an organization that will help them. You know, what is the aging out look like as far as any baby can? Yeah, so so we serve up to 17 years old, um sometimes 21. We do have such a great nonprofit community network in this town. Other disabilities agencies are doing incredible work including the Arc of San Antonio who works with older adults you know, Gordon Hartman in the community with, with the, the multi-assisted center, the MAC, which is going to be one-stop wraparound services for anyone with disabilities to get their services. Um, I think we do a good job of working with our partner agencies and saying, look, we don't want these folks to fall through the cracks because they're aging out or, you know, they're going from pediatric care to adolescence now, or they're going from adolescence to high school and college let's give them everything they're going to need to, like you said, to have a smooth handoff. So we're really blessed to have other community partners in the community that help us um, with this work. And as part of our case management program, our goal is to not just say, okay, we got to cut you off because you've aged out. Our goal is to say, our goal is to have worked with them. And this case management program that we work with families on is not one and done. It's, it can be sometimes nine months to a year longer if the families are needing it. And the goal is that, you're better off when you leave any baby can than when you came in. You're empowered. You're more educated. You know your rights as a family. You know what you can ask for in schools. If you have a child with special needs, you know what other agencies are going to do this work. Um, we're going to connect you with legal services so that you can you know, think about all those things that a parent who has a child with disabilities has to think about for the future and the health of, of their child. So we do work very hard with our um, community partners, but then also our case managers the pro- our program is designed to make sure these families are sort of not left having to figure this out on their own once the child grows up and then has to face a life of uh, being an adult with disabilities. Aside from board members, are there other paid employees that work for the organization or is it all volunteer based? No, we we have, of course, we have 17 board members. We've got um, a program advisory committee um, made up of community members and some board members who help us make, and families more, you know, most importantly, families um, who help us remain responsive and accountable through our programming. We also have about 30 full-time staff members who uh, mostly um, program technicians in each of the programs that we, you know, went over earlier. We've got uh, administrative staff, too, who, who helps to keep the, the lights on and, and the office operating so that we can continue to provide these services. How can or can people volunteer? Absolutely. Is that something that, that you advocate for? <laughs> yes. Yeah, we, we know we could never do this work on our own. We have many opportunities for folks to volunteer. Um, I think the best way is just to, to reach out to us via Facebook, um, online, um, or, you know, looking at our website, but we, um, are always in need of baby supplies, safety supplies. So there's a lot of groups that are like, look, you know, donations are always helpful, but if we're not able to do that right now, what can we do? And it's like, well, you can host either in your neighborhood or in your office, a baby supply, you know, drive and get diapers and get, you know, 
wipes. Those are things that our families are always in need of. One of the other things that we do is we ensure that our families know how to make their homes safe. There's other, there, there's so many things you have to think about when, of course, when you're a parent, but especially when you're a parent of a child who has special health care needs, you've got to go and think about things a little bit differently in terms of what's in your home that could possibly be a danger. So we have safety kits. We, you know, want these families to have smoke alarms and, you know, knob protectors and oven locks and fire extinguishers. So there's always needs that we could have. We also have um, community events where we're giving away toys during the holidays. So lots of opportunities for folks to get involved. What are some ideas that that maybe you have or have at least discussed with your team for the future? I mean, are there, are there, do you have, I know you've only been there for about <laughs> seven months, but uh, I mean, are there things that, that you have planned out for this organization going forward? You know, I, I think we are trying to, with the pandemic and understanding the way needs have evolved and changed during this past year, um, we're trying very hard, again, to continue to listen to what our families are needing. Um, I can definitely tell you that advocacy work is going to continue to be a big pillar and component of what we do. Because again, I think what we're learning as nonprofits is we have to prioritize what we are best at. And in our case, these programs are not available anywhere else. So what we're doing is doing the best we can to preserve them and grow them because they're extremely important. But as more and more people, you know, the more outreach you do, we've got to be prepared for the influx of folks who are going to come in and need these services. We don't want to, and we currently don't have to, but we don't ever want to get to a place where we're like, I'm sorry, we ran out of funds. I'm sorry, we've hit our cap. We can't help you. We need another month. Right now, we don't have that. So we, are, we of course, want to look at growth to continue to meet that demand. Um, but also, like I said, the advocacy and public policy piece is going to be extremely critical because there's so much more you can do with statewide policies than what we can do on our own as one nonprofit. So I I think all of these things, I think the short answer would be um, we're always looking at ways to make these programs more effective, but to constantly be thinking outside the four walls of our agency. What other programs can we work with? If they're doing something better, let's not reinvent the wheel. Um, What other issues are out there? We have so many family stories. What bills, what future bills need to be written? Um, What can we be educating our lawmakers on Um, What are the unintended consequences of some of the changes with Medicaid or and some of the funding cuts that our families experience that they may not be aware of? So these are the conversations that we're always, you know, constantly having in a way to maximize our impact, because unfortunately, we do live in in the nation's poorest large city um, and the needs are not going to go away anytime soon. So we want to be prepared again, not just on our own, but to help meet the continued demand for these services and to make sure families have what they need. My next question is twofold. The first part of it is, what do you think makes San Antonio unique in respect to having a nonprofit here? Like what makes it a great place for a nonprofit? But then the second part of that question is, obviously there's room for improvement. How can the community and the city as a whole improve for nonprofits? Oh my gosh, that is an excellent question. So your first, the first part of that question was what makes San Antonio sort of special and unique and helpful to nonprofits, if I'm getting that right. So I actually talk about this a lot because I grew up in the Houston area in Pasadena and I went to, uh, I moved to San Antonio for college at Incarnate Word and stayed 
and have never wanted to leave. I've never seen what, what makes this city so special is even though we have our share of issues, even though we may not have a lot of community wealth, people give when they have nothing to give. It is one of the most rewarding parts of my job when you look at any nonprofit's numbers and the majority of them will tell you that the biggest share of their donors are middle income to lower income givers. And even the food bank will tell you their average donation is less than $50. I, that, that is just something so special about this community is that we step up and when somebody needs help, we do it. And we may not be able to write big checks, but we're going to get families and neighborhoods and the entire community involved and helping to meet issues. When you're a nonprofit in a city like this, that is something really special. And I, I feel like that's very unique to San Antonio. And every city has great, you know, I'm not trying to dog other cities. I'm just saying that I, I feel that difference in this city um, when people are willing to give so much to the point that it hurts them personally because they care about their neighbor. That's just huge. Yeah. And before you answer that second part, I, I do want to add something in there. You're absolutely right. And the reason that I know that that's a true statement is because the majority of nonprofit organizations that I bring on to this podcast, and I've interviewed a lot up to this point now, <laughs> uh, they all say the same thing. And even when I talk to people who don't work in a nonprofit organization and they work in the private sector or, you know, in the for-profit um, industries, they say the same thing. And San Antonio is, we love each other. I mean, you know, as a whole, and we, we step up, like you mentioned, for the community when the community needs it. And it is something that's, that's special to the city that I don't think you see in many other large municipalities. Um, right. And, and so I, I can say I, I can attest to that hearing from a lot of other people that live here in San Antonio that feel the exact same and way. And even the large corporate partners here, the USAAs, the HEBs, the Valeros, the, these are, are corporate citizens who are giving from their corporate budgets, but it doesn't stop there. We're getting support from their employees. Their employees are raising money. Their employees are giving through United Way. They're coming and they're showing up with, with you know to volunteer or dropping off items. It's just, it's something really special because if you try to do this on your own, you're just not going to make it. You're going to fall. You're going to drown very quickly. But so many times, in, and as a nonprofit leader, there are those scary moments where you're up at night wondering, how are we going to make budget? You know, you know, a pandemic happens and all your events are canceled. How are we going to continue the level of services that now all of a sudden have been skyrocketing with this amount of need and our donations have been, you know, flat. You know, how you, you do have those moments. And always in my 10 years of doing this work, I wasn't always sure what was going to happen. Somebody came through, a donor came through, a company came through. Somebody said, we're not going to let you fall because this organization is too important. And it's why I've stayed in this city as long as I have. And it's why I never want to leave. And it's why I never want to leave nonprofits because Somebody once told me before, and I've never forgotten it, if you're for San Antonio, San Antonio is for you. That is so true. So yeah, it is something very special and unique that I just, I, again, I, I'm not trying to be competitive, but this is very San Antonio. And I think a lot of people are like, why San Antonio? You don't have the, the same young professional network or the cool things that Austin and Dallas and Houston have. I'm like, yeah, but we have something you don't find in those other cities. And it's this part, it's this passion for making sure you're going to be okay. You know, and so I just, yeah, I, I love that. Absolutely. And, 
you know, this is going to be a great segue to that second part of the question, but I was just having a conversation this morning doing an interview for the other series, Essay Talk, talking about younger generations like myself. I'm a millennial and I was speaking to another millennial and we were talking about, you know, the decision that a lot of people in our age group either are making or have made and generations before us. Do you leave San Antonio and try to go to those places that, you know, have the things that you want and the lifestyle that you want and maybe this way of life? Or do you stay here in San Antonio and do you make it better? Do you be part of that change that you're looking to see here? San Antonio lags in different you know, areas behind other large cities, but it can get there. You know, it can improve. It can be, you can create that lifestyle or that way of living by, by helping be part of the change staying here in San Antonio. I mean, I definitely agree with you. Like you said, if you're, I, I love that quote, by the way, you know, if you're for San Antonio, San Antonio is for you. I completely agree. And I would, I would implore people my age and younger to just stay here and be part of that change that you want to see. Cause we're, we're right there on the edge. And um, so anyways, like I said, I think oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I think what you said about being part of the change, you can go to these cities and where, you know, these larger cities where, you know, the networks and the systems are sort of well established and kind of fit into that or, you know, kind of be a part of that for the ride. Or you can be here and like you said, be part of designing it, be part of that right. change and watch it grow and flourish. And I think that that's an exciting thing. You can start the innovation right here in San Antonio and, and be on the, you know, the forefront of it. Uh, but like I said, it's a it's a kind of a great segue to the second part of that question, which is what kind of change do we still need to see here in San Antonio as far as obviously, you know, you're probably going to speak to any baby can, but just nonprofits as a whole, you know, how can we improve as a community? Is it education? Is it do we need to see more funding? I mean, obviously, funding is always something, you know, <laughs> that we can see more of. But, um, you know, what what do you think that San Antonio needs to improve upon? Oh, this is tough. Because I can get in trouble with my response, but I want to be very, but I want to be very, like, again, real talk. I, there's just, you know, the sky is the limit. I, the opportunity that we have, the talent, um, and I'm going to, you know, steal a, a quote, and I hope I get it right from, from Diego Bernal. And, and he always says, look, Talents exist everywhere, but potential, no, potential and talent exist everywhere, but opportunity does not. And I feel like we are definitely a city bubbling with so much talent and so much skill, but just not the opportunities we do. You know, unfortunately, this isn't to be negative, but just to sort of state the facts that we are behind in our educational attainment. We are behind in terms of incomes, even professional even professional incomes are, you know, lag behind what you could be making in Houston or Dallas and Austin or somewhere else. But I think that there, there is a lot of potential. We do have to keep talking about the fact that if you live in certain zip codes in this city, you have a harder time reaching your potential. There is generational poverty here. There is redlining here. Um, if you want to learn more about that, just go and look up Dr. Oh my gosh, her, her name is escaping me, but we have an incredible professor of urban studies at Trinity who talks about redlining and generational poverty in San Antonio and sort of how our East, South and West sides were sort of designed to sort of keep people of certain groups there. Um, and you find 
the same issues generations later and they look the same. You know, they, they look the same. We still have the same, you know, 78207 for generations has, has been seeing these issues. I think just continuing, and I think we are getting better about it. I think the, the equity lens that the city has put together under Mayor Nuremberg to make sure that we're putting infrastructure and resources um, into historically neglected neighborhoods. I think that's great. I think it's great for us to talk about the fact that we can't look at everything as an, a level playing field because it's not. And I, I just thought of the professor's name and I can't believe I forgot because she's just a legend, but Dr. Christine Drennan. Dr. Drennan has a lot of um, incredible information and presentations over the um, historical inequities in San Antonio. And I know we're not the only city to have that history, but I think it's going to be important for us to understand it to remember it so that we can know how to, as nonprofits and communities together, help each other out. I think that, uh, especially during the pandemic, I love the meme where it was saying, no, we're not all on the same boat. Like we're trying to get to the same place. Some of us are in yachts, some of us are in dinghies, some of us are in blowups that have been taped up. Let's acknowledge that and, and, and figure out how best we help each other get to the same destination. Um, I think that that's where we could can do more. It's, and as nonprofits, we have a lot of nonprofits, incredible nonprofits. I think that's also a result of having so much need. When you have a lot of need, you need a lot of nonprofits to help fill in the gap. Um, I, I do think that we could be more collaborative. I, I think that we could see more of us working together and doing the best we can to maximize our impact, especially during times like these where your resources are more limited and your expenses are higher. We do have to get more creative in terms of maybe we don't need to be doing this program. You know, we had to do, when I got here, I had to make a tough decision to transition out one of our programs. It was a health and wellness program. It was, it was a wonderful program, great staff, but there were others in the community that were doing it that had taken it to new heights. And we were struggling as an agency dealing with, you know, all of the changes and the economic issues that were happening during the pandemic to kind of keep everything intact. So we thought, you know what, these other programs that we have, there's nowhere we can send the families to. We have to preserve these. This one, we can help these families and navigate them to this other nonprofit, this other agency that's that's doing it and, and, and maybe even doing it in a bigger capacity and at a higher level. So I think that if we do more of that as a nonprofit community, incredible things. And I think we are doing that during the pandemic, but I'm just saying that if we pick up the pace and we see more of that on a larger scale, we will see much bigger impacts in the community. Another twofold question for you. Number one, what is the most fulfilling part of your job? And number two, what is the most challenging? Oh my goodness. Fulfilling. I love working with our donors and again, being in San Antonio, they look in all, they look all different. They're not necessarily high wealth individuals. They can be anybody. And I love that part. I love being able to be a voice for families, specifically families who are used to being forgotten, who are tired. I love being able to say, we hear you, we see you, you matter, and we're going to get a megaphone to this challenge. We're going to help you meet these basic needs, but we're also going to make sure other people who need to know about this issue know about it. I think the most fulfilling part is just being able to work with these families. And again, I'm not saying that we're the, the savior here as a nonprofit. These families very much are the heroes in this story um, who are raising these families 
who are doing everything they can and who are coming to us for a little bit of assistance. Um, I think the most fulfilling part is being able to learn from them and um, navigate the way and improve upon the way we are doing that by listening to them. I think it's the most fulfilling part. And the most challenging? Um, <laughs> I think, I'm sure there's a lot of challenges. Yeah, there's in a phase, lot. But... <laughs> Again, you're, you're, you're asking questions here that can get me in trouble. Um, no, I think the, the most challenging part, it's always going to be sustainability for a nonprofit. We hustle for all of the donations that we get. Usually, a lot of that is through event, you know, through events, which every nonprofit felt the pain from. I think, you know, we've got wonderful donors, but things change that that donor may not be able to give at a certain amount, at a certain level every year. So constantly sort of being on your toes with developing that money from, from and donations from different groups. And then I guess, you know, I think that that's one of the bigger things that keeps us all awake at night. But also, are we doing enough? I feel like the challenge, especially for me in these last seven months, is here's the issues. Here, here are the issues. Here are the needs. Here's what we're seeing. And feeling like you can never do, a, you know, enough to sort of scratch the surface. And I think that's when we have to step back and say, you know what, we're not doing this alone. We've got all these other incredible nonprofits. We've got policymakers. We've got donors. We've got volunteers. We've got staff. They all want to help. How can we figure it out together? Um, but I do think that the most challenging part is wanting to do so much more and so much faster than you're able to physically be able to do or that you have the capacity to do. Before I get to my last question, is there anything else you want the podcast listeners to know about yourself, about Any Baby Can? Anything else? I would just say to the listeners that I know this has been a, a particularly tough time for everybody across the board. Uh, I think, you know, we've all lost folks that we love. Um, we've seen folks suffer. I, I think it's been a little bit encouraging to see a light at the end of the tunnel. And we're sort of digging ourselves out and, and we're um, on the way to recovery. And who knows how long that's going to take, right? I think as a community, we're going to figure that out together. But so much of what I hear from folks who are like, look, I can't write you a big check. I can do 50 bucks, but I'm not even going to do that because it's just not enough. It's just a drop in the bucket. What I would tell to the listeners is anything you can do, whether it's an hour volunteering, if it's $5 during the big give, it all makes a difference. It all adds up and we see it, we need it, and we notice it. And I will tell you that it does not go um, in vain. It, it, is, it is doing great work. So whatever organization, whether it's ours or many of the wonderful organizations that are doing great work here in town, advocating for vulnerable communities, do something. Be on a committee, be on their board. It all helps. It all matters. And there's nothing too small. Because I hear that so many times from board members. I can't do enough. I can't do that. No, 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 no. You're here. You're, you're listening. Like, that's a lot. So I would just encourage folks to get involved with the nonprofit that you're passionate about that has a mission that's really close to your heart. Coming down to my last question, and this is my favorite one because it requires you to really look inward. Oh, okay. How do you want to be remembered? Oh, wow. I have a, uh, I have a three and a half year old daughter, Zan, and I would want her to remember me, you know, as somebody who considered others before myself and her name was very, was, was very purposely done. Her name is Zan, and it means defender of people. And it wasn't an accident that we named her Zan and that she had that meaning behind her name. 
Um, I would want her to grow up and understand that that's why we're here is to defend and serve other people. And I would just hope I'm really not looking for my name in lights. I am not looking for my name in the paper. I took this position not because of the title, but because of what I could do with the title and what I could do at this agency as its leader. I would just want to be known for the work that was accomplished for families who really needed it at the end of the day. Um, that would be the most important thing for me and that my daughter would see that, be inspired by that, and then find her own way to serve other people and to consider them more than ourselves. And it's really what we try to live by in our family. Elise, before I let you go, let the listeners know where we can find you, any baby can, any social medias, website, things of that sort. Yes, of course. Our, our website, anybabycansa.org, and then um, at anybabycansa on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. We love to hear from folks. Um, we have a lot going on, and so you'll, you'll see that when you visit us. But um, also lots of opportunities to just get involved or learn more. The other thing I do want to do is, I'm not going to call it a shameless plug, but if you do know any families who have a child with special health care needs, zero to 17, or you know somebody of any age who is having trouble affording their prescription drugs, call us, visit us, because there's no need for you to suffer in silence when we have these programs. Um, they're not available anywhere else, and we're all too happy to assist you in whatever you need. So yeah, I would just remind everybody that um, there's no cost to these, and we don't have income requirements. So if if you have a child with special health care needs or know somebody who needs prescription assistance med, uh, medication support, give us a call and let us know how we can help. At least it's been a pleasure. I'm really glad that you had time to come on the podcast and speak with me. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Like I talked about before, you know, in our first phone meeting and even before we got started recording here, I was so interested to learn more about Any Baby Can, especially because my mom worked with a lot of kids with disabilities and, and that was, you know, her field for many years. It, it's such an interesting topic. And I mean, that could be a whole podcast in itself talking about what that's like for these families. Um, so I really admire your work. I admire your organization. Um, and again, I appreciate what you do for the community. Thank you so much, Zach. It's a privilege to be able to talk with you. Thank you for what you're doing to tell these stories and to bring us closer together. I really appreciate it. So listeners, that's going to do it for the interview portion of the podcast. I'm going to take a quick break. And when I come back, I'll give my recap on today's interview. So we'll be right back. Hey guys, it's Zach. As some of you may know, I help people plan for retirement. And as your advisor, I can not only show you how money truly works, but put you in control of your money today and in retirement. If you're looking to schedule a financial review, please give me a call at 210-760-0409. Welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Elise Bernal. As you learned, Any Baby Can plays such an important role here in San Antonio. You know, I think naturally we forget about the struggles that many families have when they have a child who has been diagnosed with different medical conditions or requires expensive medicine or needs something like a cranial helmet, for example. It's so crazy to me that there are health insurance companies out there that don't cover cranial helmets. Like you heard Elise say, you know, they consider them cosmetic. I mean, at least to me, it just doesn't make any sense. And as I was editing the interview and I heard that again, I looked up HB 2134 that Elise was referring to and noticed that it was referred to business slash commerce by the Senate 
I'm not really knowledgeable about how the bill process works, especially, you know, here in Texas. So I honestly don't know exactly what that means. It doesn't seem like it's a good thing just because it wasn't passed through the Senate right away. But again, I, I really don't know. You know, she did mention that it was an uphill battle in the Senate. Um, it seemed like it was going to be tough to get it passed anyway. But again, I, I really don't know the bill process. So with that said, if you are listening to the podcast and you can explain the process in layman's terms to me, I really appreciate it. I also love that they offer community and family assistance to help educate people about things like autism. You know, autism awareness is very important, you know, not just for the families of an autistic child, but for the community so that they can properly know how to engage with someone who has autism. I've mentioned multiple times on the podcast that my mom was a special education teacher. And I just remember hearing, even growing up and, and even in the story she tells me now, you know, mentioning that it was sometimes difficult working with parents. Um, and it's not that she didn't like the parents, you know, most of the time it wasn't difficult and she enjoyed it and they loved her and she loved the parents and they had a good relationship, but sometimes it was difficult and it's completely understandable. It's extremely tough to be a parent as it is, from what I hear at least, but when you have a child with a disability or a developmental delay just adds another layer of difficulty that you have to deal with as a parent. That's why I'm so appreciative for not only special education teachers, because I really am, but also this organization, Any Baby Can. Something else that stuck out to me was that they offer services to families who have lost a child. Whether it's an infant or a teen, the fact that Any Baby Can provides this can make a huge difference to a family. I mention this to a lot of my clients. Keep in mind, I am an advisor, but I discuss it a lot when I'm discussing their life insurance options and they have questions about life insurance. And one thing that I always go back to is I tell them the last thing you should have to worry about when there's a death in in your family, is the financial side of things. The only thing you should be focused on when someone passes away is the grieving process, because it is a process, and it's something that you, you need to deal with. But you shouldn't have to worry about what things are going to cost, if you can afford it or not. It's the last thing you should be worried about. But this is especially true if it's a child. I can't imagine what it's like to lose a child, to lose an infant, especially Again, I really appreciate Elise taking the time to speak with me. I learned a lot about this organization and about Elise and, and her passion for the nonprofit space and everything she's supporting there at Any Baby Can. I know she's fairly new to her role as president and CEO, but I just know that she's going to do a great job in her role. That is going to do it, though, for another episode of Searching for San Antonio. I really hope you enjoy the interview with Elise. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe on your preferred listening platform. We did recently get added to Stitcher, um, and I am working on getting the episodes uploaded to YouTube as well, so stay tuned for that. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I please ask that you leave a rate and review if you haven't done so already. If you want to keep up with the show and our other talk show series, SA Talk, please give a follow on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at SAPod Network. If you have questions about advertising or partnership opportunities, please reach out to me at Zachary at SAPodNetwork.com. If you're a listener and want to support the show, visit our link in bio on any social media platform and click support monthly. Thanks again for listening and Viva San Antonio.